Ooh, baby. Oh, man. I, I can hear Clarence, Clarence Thomas polishing up his gavel right now. Yes, folks. Welcome. Left reckoning. There's not a good way to really fade that, unfortunately. But hey, we're on the soft restream. David, we're both named Matt per restream right now, oh, but it's good yeah. to be with you. Indeed, David, uh, how are you? You're doing rubbing today? off of me, friends. You know. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to New York, and now he's a Matt. <laughs> yeah, man, had a good time hanging out with you the other day. Um, though I am happy to be back in the great state of Texas and broadcasting Left Reckoning 129. With our good friend, um, Darna Noor, um, who is always such a treat to talk to and especially read her work. Again, there are links below. Um, you know, Darna's at The Guardian now, which is incredible. Has been putting out a tremendous amount of really, really excellent, high-quality reporting. So be sure to be following and reading all of her work if you aren't already. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting to see she's at The Guardian. Uh, good hire by them. Good, very good hire. Um, yeah, but uh, we got a fun show for you all today. We're going to be talking a little bit about climate change, why the right loves oil. Um, I think in a little bit, uh, Matt and I will be talking about the big news for the New York Times. Trump indicted again. Um, got some, got some hot takes coming. Um, but before we get there, just a quick reminder, folks, you can support the show at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Uh, you're not going to get this kind of program uh, anywhere else uh, where we take deep dives into union struggles, social history and politics, uh, but also have a good time and fun while we're doing it. Um, so for just five bucks a month, you get access to the main show, the post game, the call in section, um, as well as a Sunday episode every weekend um most recent ones matt and i took a deep dive into the border uh, the way that it was sort of covered and talked about politically in the 90s we've been doing deep dives into theory reading so we've gone through a lot of classic marx texts most recently we just capped off the part three of the 18th brumaire um, which i think was an incredibly ambitious but a really fun uh, thing to go through and i know a lot of people who've been listening to have been enjoying it so if you haven't uh, come and seen what's on the other side. You really are missing out. I mean, this is like uh, the public show is only about twenty percent of the stuff that we put out there. So I realize, you know, yeah. y'all, y'all are missing out on a lot. So consider well, supporting us at Patreon.com/slash/LeftReckoning. And when we do um, reading series, they often like dominate my thought process for a while. But like, it's funny all the how useful Eighteenth Brumaire is to oh, like yeah. pull things out. I mean, from the superficial things like. Uh, for instance, uh, Louis Napoleon, there were peasants in the south of France that thought he was the actual Napoleon. Uh, to this day, we have people who think uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the original RFK. Um, uh, but uh, also just the look in how, like, actually capital, there are schisms and uh, different sort of sectors and how they uh, can fight against each other and how those fight uh, those uh, schisms either accentuated for progress, uh, revolutionary progress, or... Uh, used to uh, re uh, reel that stuff back. So yeah, yeah, very interesting reading series. No, and I think the next big one we're going to do is the Communist Manifesto. Um, something that you know a lot of people have said they've read but haven't. So if you've it's been a while, um, you want to recap, or if it's your first time, uh, yeah, Patreon.com/slash/LeftReckoning. I'm really looking forward to diving into that text because that's another rich one too. Where it's like you know, I mean, I'll just say this. Uh, I know we got to get started with the show, but like when it comes to Marx, right? He's had a resurgence um, in like pop culture and on the left, right? Um, but you know, certainly with the right, with people like James Lindsay, um, I have no idea what they're really talking about uh, when it comes to Marx, because really for him, Marx is just like a avatar um, to sort of uh, represent the social thought and politics of um, the academic left, of like a kind of uh, cultural left or whatever you want to call them. But even on the left, you see a lot of people they talk about Marx in a way that makes it seem like they think that Marx is basically just like the most liberal liberal. Um, <laughs> yes. It could be further from the truth. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun to uh, dive into that. Um, yeah. So. I mean, Jordan Peterson famously, maybe we could invite the doctor to yeah, maybe, maybe Dr. Peterson will elucidate some of the finer points of the only Marx uh, text that he's read. Apparently he's read. It seems like the opening section too. Yes. <laughs> maybe. I think he looked at wiki quote for the, <laughs> <laughs> I, which, you know, 
a lot of people get by very far uh, by just doing that. So uh, maybe that's why he's rising and grinding and making the big bucks and we're not. But uh, again, if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash left reckoning. And we'll have some cool things uh, cooking up for y'all in the month of August. But yeah, let's not dilly dally anymore. We got a we got a big story to get to with Darna in a second. Uh, but before we get there, um, as everyone knows, uh, we've been covering uh, the Teamsters uh, contract negotiation for the past few months. Um, we talked about the most recent contract last week uh, with Max Alvarez of the Real News Network and Working People's Pod. Um, and we'll probably have a couple more things coming up this month as uh, the, as there are votes on the uh, acceptance of, or, or rejection of this new contract. But today I want to talk a little bit about the UAW, NIDA Auto Workers, um, specifically focusing on some of the language that we're seeing um, from the recently um, elected reformer um, uh, candidate and president now of the UAW, uh, Sean Fain. We've played a bunch of his stuff before. I'm a big fan. I think he's a really great communicator and I like, for example, we played a video a little while ago um, where you know we're not going to do a bunch of pictures of me and the leadership of the UAW shaking hands uh, with management and the owners of the company. Um, and instead, they released a really great video of them shaking hands and talking to the membership, um, the union membership of the organization, right? And like you know, sometimes these things, if you haven't been following or if you're not really familiar with the American labor movement, might seem small and symbolic. Um, but there has been a dramatic shift in how open and democratic that union is, uh, the amount of say that rank and file workers have in that union. Um, and you're starting to see it now as the UAW, just like the Teamsters were, is going into contract negotiations. Um, and just yesterday, uh, Sean Fain, um, instead of so typically when they do these kind of contract negotiations, the leadership of the union goes and sits down with the bargaining with the management team, um, the contract negotiating team from the company, and they deliver behind closed doors the demands of the union. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that's always necessarily like cynical or sinister. Right. But it also means that a lot of times these things are being done behind closed doors. So who knows how much they are actually fighting for these things or, 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 or those things or even bringing up uh, major issues. Uh, Sean Fain broke from tradition here. And yesterday um, on Facebook had a Facebook live where they talked where he talked about the goals of this contract negotiation. Um, he has, there's a great slogan that they have right now that says record profits mean uh, record contracts. Um, saying that, look, these companies are making a lot of money. They're doing really well. It's time for that to show in the amount of money that we're getting paid and um, the other concessions that we're gonna get into. Cause we're gonna be talking about a little bit more than just how much people's paychecks are uh, at, the, at the end of the pay period, um, but also, also demands for people's right to life um, and, and, and freedom. Um, but just to look at a couple of these things before we get into this clip, um, some of these big goals that they have in there are the elimination of wage tiers, substantial wage increases, restoration of cost of living allowance um, increases, which is huge, Defined benefit pension for all workers, reestablishment of retiree medical benefits, the right to strike over plant closures, limits on the use of temporary workers, more paid time off, and increased benefits to current retirees. Um, so it is a big contract. Um, and, you know, we'll be watching this closely and trying to support in whatever way we can as they are pushing these companies. Um, we'll be getting to Wall Street in just a second, which is already starting to take uh, notice. Um, but if, if, unless you had anything else to add, uh, man, I think that's enough preamble. I wanted to go um, to, I, we have two segments from his conversation yesterday um, that I think are really, really worth highlighting. And, you know, just to give people programmatically a little understanding, he starts out talking about this contract um, and the audacious goals, these demands, how well off these companies are doing, how it's time for them to show up at the table. Um, and then he starts talking about something that I think is really, really important, uh, which is time particularly free time. Remember, if you are a socialist, this is one of the great demands of the socialist movement. Not only do you deserve a fair wage for your work, but you also um, demand the right to life, the right to be able to live, the right to be able to be something outside of what your profession is, the right to be able to spend time with the family, to spend time at home doing what you wish. Um, and I really like the way that, that Sean talks about this. I almost wish we could play the whole thing um, I had a hard time cutting this, um, but uh, we'll just jump in uh, where I was able to find a little bit to get into it. The greatest resource in this world is a human being's time, because each of us is only given a finite, precious amount. 
And that's what wages are all about, no matter what type of work somebody does. You're being paid for your time. And that should be the focus of everything going forward, no matter what work somebody does. So in the coming weeks, we're going to hear company executives and talking heads on television try to boil our demands down to numbers. The big question everyone's going to ask is, how much is this going to cost? But if this awful pandemic taught us anything, it's the one thing is that there's more to life than just work. It's not enough to just survive. We should all have a right to thrive. I believe all of us have a right to look back on our life and not regret spending so much of our time making hundreds of billions of dollars for greedy companies rather than spending time with our family and friends. Ultimately, that's what this contract's all about. It's about securing a higher quality of life for the working class. That brings me to the last point I want to make. So I'm just going to pause it right here because I think we have a couple things to say because this next point I think is important, um, um, but it's it's a little bit historical and we'll get us to why it matters in a second. Um, well, I mean, I, I think framing this in this way is really great. And we'll get into some of his endorsements policy-wise in a second, Matt, um, so don't uh, yeah. we don't want to spoil the big surprise at the end. Um, but I mean, like talking about this is like, you know, when you're talking about a wage, it's not just how much money you're working in. It's like how, um, it, it, you know, it, it's this understanding that like you are being taken, your time is being taken away from you. Um, and it's being taken away for you in some kind of service, some kind of production. Right. And like, look, this is like work is something that is important. Right. Like this is, I mean, it's fundamentally important, right? It's how we eat. It's how we have clothes on our back. It's how we have housing, right? So like the idea that just because this trade is being made is not necessarily like the worst thing, but um, what has happened more often than not in this country particularly is, I mean, people probably heard the term before, wage slaves, right? Um, where you spend your entire life um, effectively in service of a boss, right? Um, because you're not being paid enough uh, to survive and enjoy your life outside of work. And as your wages um, go down, maybe compared to cost of living, things like that, you are constantly in service of a boss um, because you are having to increase the amount of time uh, that you are working. I mean, like, you know, when we talk about like for things like the 40 hour work week, um, you know, sometimes that can almost seem like an idealistic goal instead of something that was won a hundred years ago by the labor movement, right? Because that right, those demands have been so infringed upon uh, by modern capitalism, um, despite the fact that this system is more profitable than ever, right? So as workers' productivity has continued to grow, instead of people being able to work less, enjoy more of their time, and importantly, um, get an increase in the amount of money that's going to their pocket at the end of the pay period, um, people are oftentimes having to work more um, and are, are seeing their paycheck become worth less and less and less um, with the higher cost of goods and services and inflation and all those kind of things. Um, you know, so talking about it in that kind of common sense way, um, I think it's really great, right? Saying so it's like, you know, what wages, no matter how much you are paid, um, it's about the time that you are losing to that where you're not able to do other things that are really important um, for life. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, framing it on this fight is something that's really important. I know, like, you know, I know it really resonates with you too, Matt. Yeah. I mean, this resonates with me like a fucking gong. The idea that not only are you alienated from like the fruits of your labor, but also from life itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And Marx, Marx in the philosophic manuscripts of 1844, the less you eat, drink, buy books, go to the theater or, or to balls or to the pub. And the less you think, love, theorize, sing, paint, fence, etc., the more you will be able to save and the greater will be your treasure, which neither moth nor rust will corrupt your capital. The less you are, the less you express your life, the more you have, the greater is your alienated life and the greater is the saving of your alienated being and everybody knows this and all this stuff that gets like um sort of confused in the are you pro-government are you pro-corporate the government works for corporations to make sure that you don't realize that that make sure that you continue working you continue serving and everything is adjusted financially by the fed by people like we're going to talk about jim kramer just twinge that just to make sure that whip is still lashing enough to make you decide, oh, yeah, I don't need to be around my family. I don't need to mm -hmm. be around people I like. I need to go work for my boss to make him profits. And like, I remember that there's a story in uh, Dad's on Duty. It was during the pandemic. It was about how mm -hmm. you wanted to, you want, to, there's all these behavioral issues going on in a school. Oh, some dads are going to come and be part of the students' lives. That's, and all of a sudden, things start getting better. And media had no idea how to interpret that. It's like, oh, does this mean masculinity? No. Where the fuck are those dads? They're at work. 
That's mm-hmm. why they're not at the, that's not why they're not in their family's lives. Like vast majority of time you're spending is for the boss. And I think like the pandemic uh, uh, maybe like gave people a little bit of notion of that, but we need to accelerate that understanding. And I mean, to hear UAW president put it mm-hmm. like that starkly is awesome. Well, let's get to the second uh, bit here, um, where he goes on to quote a very famous uh, unionist, uh, Walter Ruther, um, something that uh, we'll get to in a second. Jim Cramer seems to not like very much. Auto workers means for the country. Um, I have here a copy of a transcript of uh, Walter Ruther's speech to the platform committee of the Democrat National Convention back in 1952. And I want to quote from it because it's remarkable how Ruther's points back in 1952 remain so relevant to us. It's like a UAW illicit history going on. (laughs) (laughs) Back then, Ruther said, and I quote, the Democratic Party must reject the false and dangerous theory that prosperity can be built from the top down by the application of trickle down theory. Your platform and program must recognize that prosperity must be built from the bottom up. That prosperity must be built in terms of millions of families who need millions of things that we know how to make. That's the end of that quote. And the sad thing is, when Walter Ruther died in 1970, it seems like that vision died with him, and the results have been very clear. I mean, excellent and and, and very true. Um, You know, I mean, uh, the UAW used to be one of the hotbeds of of radicalism in this country. Um, A lot of its early um, leadership was socialist. Um, And you see this kind of shift that happens across the board in the American labor movement and American politics in general, um, you know, where there becomes a weakness. And look, a lot of big fights and people were up against a lot. I think it's incorrect to necessarily um, paint a flat picture of what happened over the, you know, 80 years after that. Um, but um, it's very true that, like, you know, hearing somebody like Sean Fain talk the way that he is talking, um, reviving the kind of radicalism in the spirit of people um, from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, you know, such a breath, breath of fresh air. I mean, it does show that there has been an unfortunate decline. And the good news, the good news is that these things can change and they can change rapidly as we've been seeing with the Teamsters um, and as we're seeing these openings in, in the UAW and across the labor movement um, and the working class in this country in general. It's not 100% where we need to be right now, um, but Lord in heaven, I mean, we are so much better off than we were 10 years ago. Um, so, I mean, I think that Fain really represents, at least in the way that he's able to, to speak here, um, a really great way at communicating um, a lot of these ideas and we're wishing them the best in their contract fight. Somebody is very nervous about this. A former Spartacist, and for people who don't know, that's like a Trotskyist organization uh, that uh, Jim Cramer was a part of in his youth. Um, You know, he saw the light of God and became a rabid, rabid capitalist. Um, But here's him. um, Saw the light of mammon, I think, is what he saw. (laughs) Yeah, of mammon. Um, here's him uh, freaking out a little bit about the Teamsters and uh, the UAW just a few days before uh, Sean Fain's uh, talk. How about the way that UPS stock initially went up on that on that deal? Yes. And then people see that maybe the Teamsters got the best of it. Although it's a good thing for the U.S. economy that there is not going it, to it, be a UPS strike. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was very important for the U.S. I'm sorry, just to pause it there. I love the trepidation that the guy has. Like yeah. I, the way he needs to like be like, you know, it's not it, let's not lose like it's good that there was a strike. Yeah, this should be a, this is the this is the lesson. Like just give in. Give in to the union demands and we all we're all fine. That's but like to be like, yeah, you know, I know what you're going to say about crushing the strike as desirable, <laughs> but like, uh, anyway, let's get Kramer a little bit more. But I love like his trepidation there. It's like I'm trying to think about what I have to speak up on, like majority report, where I'm like, you know, Sam, like let's cool it a little bit. But anyway, this economy that there is not going it, to it, be it, a UPS strike. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was very important for the U.S. I do want to know whether Ford is going to talk about whether there's a more of an issue with with the UAW. Then Carol Tomei talked about being an issue with, with Teamsters. Very important to watch that because, because when you look at the way GM traded, it started going down. 
when Mary Barra, the CEO, glossed over the union issue. That's a big mistake. Sean Fame reminds me of the 1930s UAW, which we don't want. Dave, we also didn't mention. <laughs> so if you didn't hear that at the end, clearly, Jim Cramer says, Sean Fain reminds me of the 1930s UAW, which we don't like. Um, that is as good of an endorsement uh, for a union president as you're going to get, I think. Yeah. And what a what a weird job that is to oh, be yeah. like, like, uh, I don't know, like, it's like the demon news, man. Like, like, and how fake is that valuation? If like, based on rather than anything going on in the factories, it's. <laughs> Like uh, uh, in a, 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 um, the avoidance of a topic by somebody on a conference call like this shit like should not be at the whims of investors. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. And I mean, like it is interesting to see. I think that, um, you know, Wall Street is very scared, for example, about Good. what's happening uh, with the union movement. So anyone who's trying to pour cold water on your excitement about this, you know, just look how capitalists are responding uh, to what's going on uh, with the militancy in the labor movement. But so we played a little bit of uh, Sean Fain talking about life um, and how work has encroached upon life, right? The lack of ability to go and see your kids play um, in Little League, uh, to be present at family gatherings, to be a part of, of, of your family, your community, um, being around your friends. Um, but here he is endorsing something um, that I think is incredibly encouraging to hear a major American a union president uh, talking about. So this is towards the end of, of his talk during he's doing like what we do on this show, a little Q&A uh, with the audience uh, where they're sending in some questions. And it's a good thing to see that as well uh, come yeah. from the UAW. Um, but let's let's uh, they got a discord. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we'll let you in there, Matt. Um, yeah, let's play a couple minutes of this because it's really good here. 40 hour work weeks, eight hour work days. I agree with your brother, but I think we need to take it a step further. I think we should push a 32 hour work week. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, our leadership, um, when I go to Black Lake, a lot of times I'll go in the library there and read a lot of documents, a lot of the old solidarity magazines from back in the 1930s and 40s when our union was founded. And it's interesting to me back in those days, if you look at some of those, our leaders back then were talking about a 35 and a 32 hour work week. There are other countries in this world that work 30-hour work weeks. Um, so I have no issue at all that we're proposing a shorter work week. We have to get back to a standard where we have quality time for our members, where we have these are quality of life issues. And that goes back to, again, what COVID taught all of us. It was the one thing that came out of such a horrible situation was that we value our time and we shouldn't have to spend seven days a week, 12 hours a day living in factories or living in our work sites. Just, I mean, just absolutely right, right. No notes needed. Um, I mean, I think that's that's a perfect way to frame it, perfect way to talk about it. And it's like, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk about numbers and things like that. Um, but remember that, like, as he's saying too, is like understanding that not only um, he said that's not in that clip, but in the first one that we played, you know, that these things aren't solely just about even just like the UAW. This is about what life is like for the working class, right? And having that understanding as well that, like, you know, there is a, a unity in in the labor struggle um, between you know people who are teamsters and people who are members of the UAW. That these fights are united um, because, yeah, when the teamsters do well. Um, the UAW is set up to do well, right? Mm -hmm. And this is how um, you're able to sort of build off of the momentum of of the class and the movement as a whole um, and start demanding the things that we were demanding um, in the 20th century. Sad, yeah, it's sad to think that like we're having to go back, um, you know, from really, really difficult times to sort of look for inspiration. Um, but you know what? There's no better time than the present to rectify the, some of the mistakes of, of, of history and start to actually win those things that we thought were yeah. maybe just around the corner or people thought were just around the corner in the thirties and forties. Yeah. I mean, his, his, uh, you know, citation of history. I mean, it's like, he's made in the lab to appeal to uh, left reckoning, um, yeah. but you know, it's, and it's like, but it's not formed in a lab like him and same with like Bernie Sanders they are formed mm -hmm. in like this socialist labor movement right. and it shouldn't, and this is what it looks like. And, you know, I mean, it'd be nice if, like we have this opportunity now there, there people are talking about how the independent media is changing. And I think that can be overstated because I would say like Tucker Carlson moving from Fox news to another corporate media platform, Twitter, that's not independent media, but the internet is a massive change in how information travels and how things are propagandized. 
it's great that this, we need to fill that as much as possible with exactly this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and because that it wasn't there in like the two thousands to like the, like what, 2016, maybe we were all, we're all poor for that. Literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And like, this is exactly the time, uh, to be showing up um, for, for these movements and, you know, to remember too, that like, particularly for people who consume a lot of like left or independent media, that a lot of the stuff is like, you know, for show. Um, and a lot of these things are run as businesses. Um, and there's a lot of nonsense out there that is just sort of pumped out, um, which is a shame because there's a real opportunity right now to get around um, the kind of corporate control of the media, the corporate control of information, um, to be able to reach wide audiences that you weren't able to reach in 2014, 2015, 2016, even, right? You know, the people who were doing it were able to build up large platforms. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to dig on anyone, like, because they were great and stuff, but also because it, there was a lot less of it then. Now it's grown significantly in the past few years. So I think people who do this kind of thing have a responsibility to sort of pick these things to cover um, because you can see that there are some uh, platforms and, and, and groups out there that are a lot less interested in sort of covering uh, what's going on in the labor fight, um, despite that they might talk about labor in the abstract. Um, but that's a gripe um, for, for, for another day. I think this is like a really, really significant um, talk. Uh, it's worth watching uh, the whole thing if, if you'd like to. Uh, it came out yesterday. It's really, really good. Um, it's really exciting. And I think that being able to frame and talk about these things in this way is something that we should all be, get better at doing because being able to speak so clearly um, about what these fights are about, what they mean, and to, you know, anticipate what's going to come. Because I, you know, what is going to come is that when this contract um, parts of it become public, it will be like, well, this is how much money the UAW is asking for, right? This is how much their wages are. We might play it later, but that weirdo, what's his name? Bet. Um, Patrick, Patrick Bet David. Yeah, we might play it later. Um, I was having a conniption about the wage the wages for ups workers right which is so absurd from for a guy who if you don't know who he is you're you're what better off for it um but he's one of those kind of TikTok hustlers you know get your money build a drop shipping empire um and you know capitalism's great socialism's awful kind of people but for somebody who's always telling people to like get the bag and money is great and all this kind of stuff to get mad that the people who were doing the critical labor in our economy uh, be they teamsters or be they uaw workers or workers across the spectrum right getting mad that they're getting um getting a fair wage uh, for their work, I mean, really shows the, the grift of what these guys do because they always like to talk about, oh, you know what, this is about the rewarding success and rewarding hard work. Um, but it becomes very clear uh, who they're talking about because they're not talking about the hard work of the guys who are loading up the trucks of all the goods that are yeah. used and necessary in this country and delivering those things or the hard work of those guys who are sweating um, at times losing their lives and limb uh, to build up uh, the infrastructure um, and the vehicles and the things that we need to do to literally move this country from place from point A to point B, right? Those guys aren't the hard workers who deserve to get their bag. It's the jackass who's sitting at the top looking at spreadsheets and deciding, oh, you know what? We're going to lose this many jobs um, or we're going to throw these people out of work um, or we're yeah. going to cut these contracts by this kind of much. Look, we squeeze labor this much. Give me a raise. Give me a, a you know, give me a, a nice bonus. Um, those are the guys that they're talking about. Um, yeah. Passive income. I mean, let's be very clear. Pa Patrick Bet David represents parasites on the economy. That's what he represents. Financial services, blah, blah, blah. It's parasitic on the actual things that move the economy, like those UPS delivery guys. Mm -hmm. Well, folks, we'll be covering this a lot more. Um, we're going to flip over to our conversation uh, with Darna. Um, again, if you haven't been reading her work, you can follow her at Darna Noor on Twitter. Uh, there's links below in the show notes um, to her Twitter and to her incredible work at The Guardian, uh, where she has been putting in long hours uh, to keep you all abreast of all the things uh, that are happening across the globe in the fight for a better, cleaner, and safer planet. Um, yeah, we were talking a little bit about uh, the the right wing, its pivot. Um pivots the wrong word how it is sort of attached culture war shit uh to climate um and then uh yeah so enjoy it's that sort of unpivot i guess yeah, we're talking about the unpivot and then yeah we, don't worry we get into like how democrats are climate deniers as well so i know some people <laughs> are a little bit anxious about that but yeah and then matt and i will be back on the other side to do a couple more stories so see you on a minute peace
Welcome back, Left Reckoners. David here, uh, joined by Matt Leck. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well, David. Good to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled today to be joined uh, by return guest and friend, uh, Darna Noor. How are you doing, Darna? Hi, it's lovely to be back. I'm doing good. Uh, we're really stoked to have you. And, uh, you know, for folks who don't know Darna, you definitely should be following her. There's links below to follow her on Twitter and her work. And she is a journalist now at The Guardian. And we're going to talk about a couple of pieces that she's uh, been putting out. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of really great stuff. Jump into it. And like, Lord, I mean, all right. So we got a lot to to get in a short amount of time. So we're going to jump right in because, I mean, you know, it's, it's hot as hell out. Everyone's been sort of experiencing um, you know, some of the real effects of of climate change. And while people might have sort of felt that there has been some shift in even the way corporations talk about uh, human-made, man-made uh, climate change, um, there has been a kind of quiet walk back from some of the oil companies who for a little while were presenting themselves as more sustainable, more green, more open, uh, you know, to some of the necessary transitions that we're going to be making. And I was just wondering if you could give people a sense you might not have been following these as, as close, like in the past couple of months, how much some of these oil companies have been sort of walking back some of their public commitments uh, to decarbonization or to producing less oil. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, oil companies are still sort of, they haven't reverted back to the sort of climate denialist language they were using 10 years ago. Um, they're still uh, purporting to be really concerned about like the green energy transition and about, um, you know, like supporting wind and solar and, um, you know, like green jobs and, and decarbonizing their existing energy and everything. Um, but around 2020, there was this huge push uh, among, among all of the major oil companies to write these kind of big, flashy net zero plans, um, basically saying like, oh, we're going to either, you know, by some combination of like uh, phasing out uh, oil and gas and like ramping up uh, carbon capture and things like this, um, we're going to zero out our emissions um, and often just within like a few decades. Uh, some of those pledges have more recently gone away <laughs> kind of quietly. Um, and in the piece that I wrote in the guardian, I basically posited that it was like, I mean, actually, I don't even want to say posited. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious that it's because gas prices have shot up again. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's the, the big thing that has changed is like Russia invaded Ukraine. All of a sudden, you know, we had all these headlines for a while that was like, gas is not even a good investment. No longer the case. Gas is a great investment now. Uh, many oil companies made record profits last year. And so um, now we're seeing things like um, BP scaling back its earlier climate goals. Um, so before it said that it was going to reduce its emissions by 35 percent by 2030. Now it's saying, uh, let's maybe do like 20 or 30 percent instead. Um, ExxonMobil had put a lot of funding into this, um, like really kind of heavily publicized and often advertised effort to basically use algae to create low carbon fuel. And it just cut all the funding for that this year. Um, Shell basically was like, Hey, we're not going to increase any investments in renewable energy this year at all. Like we're still going to reduce our emissions, but we think we've basically done enough for the year. Um, and, uh, you know, un unsurprising if you think about like what the sort of, uh, market landscape looks like. Um, but, but pretty incredible too. If you, if you look back even just like six months to when a lot of these CEOs were talking a huge game about climate change. Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, in, in your piece, uh, you quote, a, a spokesperson, um, for Shell who says society needs to take action on climate change and like, um, you know, that's obviously it just it's been amazing for me to sort of watch how a lot of these companies, which is just like you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be somebody like you who's spending, you know, a lot of times combing through which companies are more responsible than not. I mean, it's the oil companies who have played such a major role, obviously, in, in, in creating this crisis in the first place. Um, but I mean, even when it comes to like some of these pledges. Um, you know, the, I think there was a pretty big disconnect between some of the ways that they were sort of presented in the mainstream media and what they actually were, right? For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I think really important to note that even when these pledges were coming out, there was tons and tons of research that basically showed that it was like, you know, largely bullshit, um, lots of reliance on unproven technology, not to say anything about like, you know, not needing carbon capture technology, but the reality is right now we just don't have it. And like it continuing to um, expand like oil and gas production, especially for energy is like not at all a response that's, uh, you know, in line with like a livable future at all. 
Um, so lots of reliance on those kinds of things. Um, net zero plans that like did not even meet the scale, the like kind of ambition that was in the Paris Climate Agreement. And we know that like that was a very, very conservative set of goals. Um, you know, lots of uh, kind of big words and not a lot of action behind it. Um, lots of kind of touting investments in uh, cleaner forms of energy, uh, but a lot more on the advertising side than the actual investment side, you know, still amounted to like tiny percentages of what the overall um, sort of energy mix of these companies were. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, pretty, pretty clear that the point of this was to kind of drum up support in the first place and not to actually change business models in any way, which like, I mean, of course, right, they, they mm -hmm. have a, the, the point of private companies is to make profits. It's not as though they have some kind of obligation to the public, like they have a job and it's to make profit for their shareholders. So I think the surprise about this is, um, is a little bit funny to me too, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they have multiple reasons not there to, to like sort of feign concern in, especially in like when gas prices are low. Like I had a, I had a, a, a acquaintance who uh, interviewed, they were an engineer graduate, they interviewed down in Houston for some oil companies and those oil companies, this is a couple of years ago, were touting all of their, alternative energy stuff and like and i feel like part of that is just recruiting you need personnel to replace uh and young kid young even engineers don't want to like work for the bad guy but mm -hmm. if oil prices go up all of a sudden it becomes easier to recruit because you just add some zero a zero on the end of the uh or a couple some numbers into the paycheck yeah yeah 100 we've seen lots of efforts to sort of um even like what in recruiting on college campuses and things like this, lots of focus on like, oh, we're actually putting lots of our efforts into solar and not mentioning like, and PS, we're like, you know, trying to open up more drilling in like the Gulf or the Arctic or wherever it is. Uh, so yeah, definitely. That, that's a, that's a trend that I think we've seen a lot of. And like, I think, you know, left reckoning um, listeners probably know this already, but like the point that you made is like, remember, you know, these are companies that are interested in profit, and, and and profit only and like putting some like nuts and bolts on that like you know dropping even like our concern about the planet like remember when there was this kind of um you know crisis in in gas prices in the country um well what were you seeing from a lot of the oil companies in the Permian basin they were actually slowing down production right because they were able to make all of this money so even like on the you know yeah like even on the level of just like providing energy for society it's like that's a secondary function to increasing the stock portfolio or or, or the price of the company 100% yeah and like right now the market is basically set up to allow that kind of price gouging to happen um like a system that allowed for that to happen is also going to allow for uh, oil companies to walk back their pledges. Um, I think it's pretty clear too that like in both of these cases, part of the the point of uh, oil company pledges, the point of all of these like nice words, both about like, you know, keeping energy prices low and about decarbonizing, I think is largely to avoid regulation. Like it's to say, oh, look, we're doing it ourselves. We don't actually need you to regulate us at all. You know, we can like leave it up to us. We know exactly what to do. We're the experts um, and we're acting in good faith here. We're like going to support the energy transition um, while obviously like fighting tooth and nail any like kind of efforts to um, force them <laughs> to mm -hmm. bring those targets in line with like, you know, what American people need or what the climate demands. Um, so, yes, I think important, important point about the price catching for sure. Well, it's great that um, <laughs> um, that uh, the hallmark policy for sort of dealing with this is not forcing companies to do as much as sort of begging and hoping that private capital will invest um, in in some uh, pro climate um, infrastructure and things like that. I want to talk a little bit about the IRA um, or IRA, as I've been told, is a politically correct. A way to to present it. Um, you wrote a really great piece um, in uh, the Guardian uh, called Project 2025: Plan to Dismantle U.S. Climate Policy for the Next Republican President. And obviously, as we're going into this next election, I think that it's important to remember that it's not very certain um, that Biden is necessarily going to win. Um, that you know we can't count uh, Mr. Trump out or one of these other folks. Um, you know, and right now the right wing is already sort of prepping the playbook for what they would like to see. I mean, could you talk a little? bit about what uh, Project 2025 is, the groups that are involved, and what it is that they're sort of outlining. I know it's pretty wide in scope, but um, give people a sense of it. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Project 2025 is basically this like coalition of dozens of far right, super anti-regulatory groups um, spanning like, you know, groups that are focused on uh, removing like the right to an abortion to folks who are mostly interested in just propping up um, like oil and coal profits. So it really runs the gamut of like it's it's like a who's who, I think, of the far right movement in the United States. Um, and. Uh, it was convened basically by the Heritage Foundation, which is this pretty well-known right-wing group um, that's historically been funded by groups linked to the Koch brothers, who obviously made their fortune in fossil fuels. Uh, no surprise there. Um, and I wrote basically about uh, their plan to uh, create transition plans for whoever becomes the next Republican president. Like They're hoping that any Republican wins the 2024 election and that they will be there to offer up transition plans and policy recommendations and even like staffing recommendations, like lists of personnel for them to hire. Um, and I, I took a look at the sort of table of contents for the transition plan um, and through some of the materials that they've distributed. And it's a pretty, pretty wild, horrifying stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it, it's it is pretty massive and like i think like one thing to remember too is that like you know one of the things that i think it was like notable about the trump administration um is like despite like the things oh trump will say this or that during an interview it's like oh maybe trump will be different from a typical republican you know when trump was president it was like autopilot republican policy and that's really because these organizations like they give the trump team like here's a roadmap boom policies written out and done for you you can just sign your name to it um and like this is how like a lot of stuff is done in washington um across the board but in, in you know in this case it's really really dangerous uh when you do have like fanatics uh like some of the people at the texas public policy foundation who people who watch the show might be familiar because you know, they were supporting, um, you know, this big push to ban water breaks and municipal regulations for for workers. Right. They play a pretty um, prominent role in, in the drafting of this. Yeah, 100 um, percent. I wrote about uh, and this was kind of formally reported by any news and Scott Waldman over there. Um, but there's a chapter in the transition plan that specifically focuses on the Department of Energy. And it was written by this guy, um, Bernard McNamee, who was a Trump appointee to the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission, basically this like body that oversees energy project siting um, and approves or denies permits. Um, but before he worked in the Trump administration, he was actually the leader of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, um, which like, you know, as you're sort of saying, basically exists to uh, fight like worker protections and environmental protections all over the country. Um, he I mean, he's really like his resume is just incredible. He also used to be a senior advisor to Ted Cruz on energy stuff. And his Department of Energy proposal is basically like like shrink the Department of Energy overall, give more power to the White House, like um, get rid of the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, get rid of the um, loan programs office, um, all of these sort of like important energy transition offices, um, like cut funding to grid deployment, um, basically just like anything that can support any kind of energy that's not oil and gas shrink the department, get rid of it, lay off staff, uh, and then do everything that you can to get rid of all the regulations that we, I mean, and like, you know, the kind of meager regulations that we have, but still the regulations mm -hmm. on these building industries. Yeah. And then like, you know, it almost seems a little vintage. It's still very important, but, uh, you know, there's also attacks on, um, you know, protecting endangered species, ending programs to restore the bison population, uh, things like that. I mean, it is just like an across the the board assault, not just on things that are like directly about reducing the amount of carbon that we're producing as a society, but also just like having a nice livable habitat, protecting wildlife um, and, and things like that. It really is a grab bag of like, yeah, as you're saying, like any kind of regulation policies um, trying to destroy them. I mean, um, I, I'd be curious as somebody who spends a lot of time, um, you know, you've been writing about all this for years. I mean, how would you sort of map out or or, or describe the right wing um, constellation when it comes to climate change? Because it did seem for a moment like there had been some openings, right? It still felt like a little cynical or whatever, but like we'll acknowledge it. Um, but it feels like over the past year or two years, like it's gone back to just pure denial again from uh, elected officials in the Republican Party. I mean, I, I honestly think that part of the reason for that uh, reverting to that denialist strategy is, again, just because gas prices are coming up. Mm -hmm. um, like, once again, they're sort of seeing, 
oh, maybe the market won't shift quite as quickly as we thought that it was going to without like the kinds of interventions that um, we were afraid of. You know, maybe things will sort of continue to move in this direction. So maybe we don't really have all that much to be worried about. Um, I mean, I don't think that that's all we're seeing. You know, we're also seeing the right wing like um, push against like electrification plans and, uh, you know, fighting like the sort of woke capitalism ESG stuff, which is, I think, very funny. All of that stuff seems extremely ineffectual in the first place and yet has <laughs> been like a big focus of right wing groups, which I just cannot possibly understand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I think a lot of it is the the sort of understanding, frankly, that like there's still profits to be made in fossil fuels um, right now. Um, and like we're obviously seeing a sort of baby version of that from Democrats, like on on the any any sort of like market led transition, I think, amounts to like some kind of soft denial. Um, but what we're seeing from the Republicans is basically hard denial and like get rid of every regulation including the ones that we've had on the books for like decades so yeah i mean it's it's wild like the way <laughs> the the propaganda around is really incredible to watch but like the way that they're trying to wage war on on, on all these policies like here um you know in austin like we we passed a kind of you know let's build a train system for the city its population's been growing dramatically uh, it's been a long time coming and, you know, they finally went a vote on it. And now you're having uh, the Texas GOP, the state government here, waging war on that proposal, trying to block it. Um, and they're coming up with all of these wild reasons, you know, typical stuff. I was the cost to be high, but also like one of the tenets of the uh, Texas GOP um, um, of, of, of the Republican Party's um Constitution now includes a line that says like the Texas GOP um, opposes all California style um transportation policies which i don't know very funny um, i think very effective but also very funny because when i think of california transportation yeah. policy i think of highways yeah. and not trains los angeles very known for its uh, thriving public transportation system <laughs> but the way that they've been able to attach like this culture war stuff this red meat um you know you know stuff to basically yeah like climate denial politics i mean i think there has been like a revival of so, so they're saying something that's encouraging for them politically about doing this i mean i'm sure a lot of it's money um but i also think that like they're seeing that they can you know get some kind of um excitement from their base by doing this kind of thing it's 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 frightening to see yeah, I think I mean, I think the the culture war thing is really right in some cases, you know, if you take, for instance, you mentioned um, you all mentioned the uh, Governor Abbott, like um, getting rid of Texas municipalities ability to have two water breaks a day for outdoor mm -hmm. workers, um, which like, I mean, how much how much profit saving is that really even going to yield, you know, like you're you're going to make it, it in some ways it could actually be bad for your bottom line, right? Like it could be actually bad for business to, um, to get rid of the ability for workers to take breaks. And so I think in those kinds of situations, it seems really clear that like, yeah, there's a, there's an ideology behind it. And also it's like a signal that you're saying, Hey, anything that you want to do corporations, you can do, like, we won't let them get away with anything. You know, we're, we're the best possible environment for you to grow your profits and to kind of like, um, you know, exploit workers all you want in our in our great state. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, like you know, and, and the the thing is too is like with that bill specifically, it's like it's so much more cynical than just the water breaks. It like actually like blocks cities from being able to pass um, regulations on anything, including like for example, one of the things they were citing was you know attempts to put plastic bag bans or bans on fracking within city limits of certain cities. So it was a really broad. Um, scoped like attack on just like the rights of city and frankly like people to be able to to govern over themselves but i think that yeah it's it's absolutely right and like you, there there just has to be like you, you know you would think there would have to be a moment where things get bad enough in these states that are getting hit really hard with the effects of this that you know maybe they would have to back off but they're they're not seeming to and um i was i was wondering like in in the last couple of minutes um if you could talk a little bit about uh how how you've as, uh, have been feeling about you know the the Biden plans and the attempts to deal with with climate so far I know we had you on when um, the IRA first came out to talk about a little bit um but one of the things I if I remember correctly we were talking about 
is that there's this kind of fear that this is going to be used to sort of say like, look, we put up this big program here, costs a lot of money. This was a big climate legislation. And then basically like the next few years are going to be defend, 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 right? And there are these strategies that like, oh, because some of this money might be going to states that are run by Republicans, maybe the Republicans are going to be afraid to attack it because, you know, once that money starts flowing into, you know, the, the rich people in that state, you know, it will be unpopular. I don't see that strategy necessarily working so i'm just like i'm I'm just curious like how you know this 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 time after ira has gone into effect how you're sort of feeling about one like it's safety as as a platform and a program and just like the general posture from like the democratic party uh, when it comes to climate change right now i mean i think it has been sort of defend 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 i think unfortunately we were kind of right um you know the ira already really paled in comparison to what was needed to take on the climate crisis it's this weird thing right where it's like historic bigger than anything has ever been done before but that's not really the like gradient that we shouldn't be judging anything against that where it's not like the, the yardstick of history is not a particularly useful one in this case um so yes i think we've seen a lot of um, just the need to kind of defend these uh, relatively modest, though important wins. Um, and like, yeah, of course, Republicans have not backed off of uh, um, fighting it. You know, we've seen this kind of funny thing where like Republican states have been getting tons of the investments that are in the Inflation Reduction mm-hmm. Act. And that seems to be a sort of political move that's done on purpose, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to like lift up manufacturing in places like Georgia or West Virginia or whatever um, in an effort to um, appeal to like a burgeoning Democratic base there. But like the House GOP right now is still kind of in like spending bill proposals, trying to cut like any federal climate funding that um, that the Inflation Reduction Act and other sort of bills like it uh, put forth. So, you know, on the one hand, we're seeing Republicans sort of touting the benefits that um, these policies have brought to their states. And on the other hand, they're kind of like fighting tooth and nail to try to get rid of them. Um, yeah, it's a it's a horrible kind of it's it's being used as a really horrible political pawn, I think. Yeah, and like it's just like with Obamacare too. It's like you know, and Obamacare is a similar thing too, right? Didn't come anywhere close to what we would want to deal with, like healthcare in this country. Um, but obviously, having some kind of protection for some people or some kind of funding for people is better than just throwing them to the wolves. But for the GOP, it's great for them to even like, even though like you could say a lot of the GOP is behind, you know, like the the um, the Medicaid gap or whatever, right? If people's experience with this new law is like, oh my god, now I have to pay for health insurance, I have this um, looming you know penalty coming for me, or my, my I feel like it's more and more difficult to get coverage, um, right? Then they blame the Democratic Party, right? And it's the same thing with the, the IRA, where it's like, you know, if there's some benefits, um, the Republicans say like, well, that's because I fought for these specifically for you, and if they're also able to poison pill it, then they say, yeah, look, this is what happens when big government comes to town. It fucks things up. Yeah, 100 um, percent. I also think that there are some like real potential kind of scary consequences of all that investment going into reds, like not because obviously mm-hmm. people in every state need jobs. Like it's really important for um, people who vote Republican to be able to have like stable jobs as well. I don't I, not like not in any sort of like spiteful way. Um, but like, you know, there was an analysis, I think earlier this year that showed that the majority of the funding going into like manufacturing and energy jobs from the IRA is going to right to work states. Mm-hmm, what does mm-hmm. that mean for the future of like unionization in these trades? Um, what does that mean for actually having like a, um, you know, organizable new green economy? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I understand the sort of like political goals here. Um, and yet, like I, there's really nothing I think that you can do to shield um, proposals like this from from that sort of uh, place where where it can be used as a pawn by Republicans in either direction. You know, as you're saying, either either we fought for it so hard for you, or like oh we're we're trying to get rid of all this wasteful spending. And like last thing I'll, I'll ask before we let you go is, um, as somebody who you know has been you know covering climate change for a while and like it it is one of those conversations that like sometimes it's like it's so it it can be so frustrating um to sit here in in 2023 and be talking about because i remember having these kind of you know very frightening conversations with people in 2010 you know and before that when i was in school Mm -hmm. um i mean if there is anything that you were wanting to maybe say to someone who is sort of like i care about you know 
climate change as a, as a general thing, but like, you know, it's maybe not like a major priority for me. I don't think it's necessarily getting worse. It just is something that's always going to be sort of kicked down the road. I mean, is we get, we've been getting all of these kind of like, you know, very frightening headlines about climate change. Um, you know, we have this many years to do something. And then, you know, the right loves to point this out. It's like, oh, people said like five years ago, if we don't do something now, nothing will change. Uh, oh, sorry, the world will end or whatever. I mean, um, I'm just curious, like, you know, in this moment right now, if, if you were just to talk to somebody who's sort of like on the fence of, you know, figuring out how to think about this or how serious or how dangerous it's getting right now, I mean, what would you say to them, which I know is, you know, a big one? Um, Yeah, it's such a hard question. I mean, it is really scary. It is really dangerous. It is really urgent. Maybe the best thing about it, though, is like there is a world where everything that we want from our world otherwise can help us on the path to like fighting climate change mm -hmm. um, you know like i believe very strongly for instance that um the energy transition needs to be uh needs to include and be led by frankly organized labor and so if we can have a world where we have better uh union protections that's something that we want anyway right like mm -hmm. I think that we want to live in that world anyway. Um, or, you know, if we want to live in a world where people don't have to own cars so they can get to work, okay, well, it just so happens that that is also a very good way to um, to fight climate change. And so I guess, you know, if you feel overwhelmed thinking about like this, the urgency of this issue itself, I think taking the, the pieces of what can be done about it and remembering that many of those are, um, you know, ways to sort of improve uh, people's lives in the meantime uh, can maybe be helpful. Um, but also like, yeah, it's hard and it's scary for sure. <laughs> um, and I, I understand feeling kind of like paralyzed and, and shitty about the whole thing. Um, but we, we don't really have a whole lot of choice, but to take it on. So taking it piece by piece, I think can be helpful. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have a pinned uh, piece here. Uh, we're going to see workers die. Extreme heat is a key issue, uh, in UPS. Uh, and like, that is a change I feel that has happened. Like the worker emphasis and the emphasis that, oh yeah, actually this is a, problem for you as you go to work this day that I don't remember. Like, I remember having a uh, in uh, Obama's lame duck period when Trump was elected thinking like, oh, crap, like not that I was excited about Hillary's climate agenda, but at least like when Trump won, it's like, oh, we don't even get to pretend like we yeah. want to ask something <laughs> of these people for four years. And it was at that point when we were seeing like we are seeing now, like all these records uh, being uh, so like that i've and like that hopelessness hasn't really gone away it's i've just gotten more acclimatized to it but i do think like if i was going to point to one optimistic thing it's like people are like anytime a worker is talking about like what they're demanding from their boss that they can't get it's even whether it's even starbucks like the ac's out like this is a serious worker issue and i think like that's one thing we got to try to cultivate yeah i 100 percent agree i think we're seeing it's no surprise that we're seeing that sort of trend grow um People know what kind of protections they need. Um, people can see the conditions that they're in change and people know when they're being exploited. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think that's a very good thing. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to join us today, Darna. And people, uh, if you're not already following Darna and all of her great work, there are links below to do it. Um, appreciate it so much. And we we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. It's always so great to talk to you all. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Of course. All right, folks. Yeah, Great to hear Darna. <laughs> it is. It is. It's really helpful. And yeah, please, if if you aren't already keeping up with all the great work uh, that she's up to at the Guardian, you really should. Yep. Um, well, we have some fun stuff. Uh, Trump has his third strike, third indictment uh, set. Uh, we should say. <laughs> and um, this is. Uh, from the special counsel, Jack Smith, I believe is his name, um, from the uh, uh, United States Department of Justice. And look, I, I'm not a legal expert. Uh, I don't want to comment on that. But politically, this is very interesting. So we have a couple things going on uh, with the Republican response, which is different this time uh, than it has been previously. Here first is our boy, Mike Pence. Oh. With regard to the substance of the indictment, I, I've been very clear. I had hoped it wouldn't come to this. I had, I had hoped that uh, uh, this issue and the judgment of the president's actions that day would be left to the American people. Um, but now it's been brought uh, in a criminal indictment, and I, uh, I can't assess whether or not the government has the evidence
to prove beyond a reasonable doubt what they assert in the indictment. And the president's entitled to a presumption of innocence. But for my part, I want people to know that I had no right to overturn the election uh, and that uh, what the president maintained that day and frankly has said over and over again over the last two and a half years is completely false. And, it, and it's contrary to what our Constitution and the laws of this country provide. You know, I'm a student of American history. And the first time I... Bro, you're a fucking right-wing shock jock. Okay, relax. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing. <laughs> In early December, somebody suggests that as vice president, I might be able to decide which votes to reject and which to accept. I knew that it was false. Our founders had just... He apparently had to consult with Dan Quayle about whether he could do it, but anyway. ...on <laughs> a war against a king. And the last thing they would have done was vest unilateral authority in any one person to decide who would be the next president. I dismissed it out of hand, but sadly, mm. the president was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers that kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. And while I made my case to him of what I understood my oath of the Constitution to require uh, the president ultimately, uh, ultimately, you know, continued to demand uh, that I choose him over the Constitution. So as, as forthright as Pence has been, and just to add a little bit of color to like those, what's revealed in the indictments as far as like the, um, the, what was going on behind the scenes here. This is from uh, uh, the DOJ official, Trump DOJ official Jeffrey Clark is co-conspirator four here. Uh, on the air, I'll make this a little bit bigger so we can see. On the afternoon of January 3rd, co-conspirator four, that's uh, Jeffrey Clark, spoke with the White House counsel. The previous month, the deputy White House counsel Lee had informed the defendant that there is no world, there is no option in which you do not leave the White House on January 20th. Now, the same deputy uh, White House counsel tried to dissuade uh, Jeffrey Clark from assuming the role of acting attorney general. The deputy White House counsel reiterated that uh, Clark, that there had not been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that if the defendant remained in office, nonetheless, there would be quote riots in every major city in the United States. And Jeffrey Clark, uh, who is a co-conspirator here responded, well, that's why there's an insurrection act. So yeah, <laughs> we'll take over the government. We'll put it down with cops just to put that clear. But there's a story here on Fox news that I find very funny. And this is why this is what we've been saying this entire time. It's like DeSantis ain't eating shit like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and looking at the same polls we are and just in it for his hell. Like they're expecting another shoe to drop. And here's mm -hmm. the story. DeSantis blasted by critics, Trump world over indictment response, not a wartime conservative. Now that is, I don't know what army they have, like they're going to war with here, but that's a Jack Posobiec quote. Um, and anyway, here's what they're not happy with. Uh, as president, I'll do a little bit of Santa's voice for you. As president, I will end the weaponization of, I can't do it, of federal government, replace the FBI director, ensure a single standard of justice for all Americans, he tweeted out. Well, I've seen the reports. I have not read the indictment. Now, I love that part, that everyone's including that. Like, this is like, you could have. You could have taken the time to read the indictment before you made a statement on it, but it's actually very useful for Pence and DeSantis to keep their arms, uh, you know, fully outstretched, keeping this thing away from them. Well, I've seen the reports. I've not read the indictment. I do, though, believe we need to enact reform so that Americans have the right to remove cases from Washington, D.C. to their home districts. Now, um, Washington, D.C. is a, and Trump is also, you know, indicted in places that aren't D.C. Um, Washington, D.C. Yeah. is a swamp, and it is unfair to have to stand trial before a jury that is reflective of the swamp mentality. One of the reasons our country's in decline is the politicization of the rule of law. No more excuses. I will end the weaponization of government. The DeSantis tweet calling for an end to weaponization, blah, blah, blah. The, you know, even the, he, this terminology, the weaponization of government, was seen over 4 million times and ratioed, <laughs> I like Fox News said ratioed, mostly by Trump supporters and surrogates. They accused the Florida Republican of not speaking out forcefully enough against the specific targeting of Trump, not mentioning him by name, and not promising a pardon. And then they go through, you know, a whole bunch of people are really pissed off. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner, your top political opponent is being unjustly persecuted. I agreed to pardon him. This is a sham, and you know it, but you hope to benefit from it. Shame on Team DeSantis. I mean, it's it's been very funny to watch, like all of the reactions uh, from um, DeSantis to Nikki Haley, uh, Tim Scott, because you know, I mean, De DeSantis, I think is is the worst off because he has the most to gain. Yes, um, <laughs> you know, so he does this kind of wishy washy. 
uh, you know, thing that I don't think it, it, it doesn't help him out with the Trump people because like, the Trump people are furious at him. Yep. And it doesn't help him out with the never Republican folks either. Um, you know, well, once like, again, Sam Adler Bell's theory that he's Elizabeth Warren of the right is right. He like, this is the moment. This is like yeah. the, the Elizabeth Warren, Iowa moment. Hey, is Bernie on your side or not? And it's mm, let's do both sides. Then you lose everybody. Well, Sorry, I mean, um, talking about people who have, you know, proudly stood uh, with with the president, um, who maybe you might not want in your corner, is my uh, indicted attorney general who is facing impeachment <laughs> charges <laughs> for for, yeah. for gross abuse of power. It says uh, nobody should be surprised by the vindictive assault by the radical left on President Trump, but everyone should fear the weaponization of state power. They have harnessed to destroy him. This abuse of power is an alarming trend that threatens our fundamental American values. I stand with Donald Trump. Um, and there's Trump standing very normally uh, next to a very <laughs> normal-looking Ken Paxton. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you do thumbs up because we're not. Yeah, I mean, what do you? You can't just shake hands. I guess I couldn't fit OJ in that uh, picture. No, no. <laughs> I mean, but like um, even Pence. I mean, you know, Pence. Um, you know, to to his credit, has um, you know, because I mean, he is in the middle of this, uh, which is why it's sort of funny um, to to hear him talking the way uh, that he is. Um, you know, I don't know. Like, just go for it at this point, right? No, no one is going uh, from a big Trump guy. Um, who thinks that uh, Pence was a cuck uh, to being right. impressed by his sort of back and forth. Like, I think this should go to the American people or whatnot. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, what Christie's having a good time with it. I mean, but these guys don't matter, do they? No. Like basically what the rest of the Republican um, field is, is trying to see if maybe Donald Trump gets pulled from the election, like right before it who's going to be first in line, um, yeah. which is why they have to do this kind of thing. But yeah. And right now it's like, it's DeSantis is odds on Ramaswamy maybe. And then probably <laughs> one of the third, but like, yeah. like that, that again, like everybody, all these freaks know that that's the only way is if Trump is hamstrung by this to the point that he loses support. And like, I don't think he's going to lose. And he's not, he's not. He's yeah. not. <laughs> So it literally would have to be him being disqualified from running or being too tied up to continue to run um, yeah. because no one is buying the DeSantis shit. Um, and it's been very right to be vindicated on that, that, that he was done from the get go. Yeah. There's just no juice in that. Let's be the responsible Republic. Like Trump blew 12 guys like DeSantis out in 2015. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that, that just, there's no constituency for that no no there isn't i mean it's completely evaporated for them at this point um and the ones who are setting them up for success are the guys like ken paxton who um cozen up to big boy donnie yeah well folks we got some fun stuff uh coming in the post game um we got a deep dive into everyone's favorite uh youtube comedian uh, jimmy Dore. Um, we'll be taking some calls and questions. I heard we have a particularly exciting one uh, from a South African uh, who you might know. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, maybe some stand up too. We'll see. Patreon.com slash left reckoning. We'll be hanging out, taking some calls, questions from you, our wonderful audience. I'll be back uh, tomorrow with a Griscom stream sometime in the afternoon, friends. Um, but until then, uh, come hang out with us post game. Patreon.com slash left reckoning. Peace. Thank you.